for any of you guys who don't know Charles Argoff, um, he's a, a, a long friend of Pain Week, um, an outstanding speaker, um, and he's here now, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> hey, Charles. Uh, he is professor of neurology at Albany Medical College and director of the Comprehensive Pain Center um, at Alban, Albany Medical Center, uh, Department of Neurology in Albany, New York. Um, it's a great topic today, and uh, thank you guys for being here. I know uh, uh, it's been a long day, but uh, um, it's going to be a great session. Charles is a wonderful speaker. Please join me in welcoming with a warm round of applause. So thank you so much. Um, so so the, the reason why it's a cool topic, I think, um, I've seen patients with erythromelagia. Okay, um, so the reason why I think it's a cool topic is that although it's not a very common condition, um, the science behind this condition may actually help us develop new therapeutics and, and, and knowledge of what may drive this. So um, there, are, there are other reasons why it might be cool, but um, these are my disclosures. Um, that's who I am. And um, these are our objectives. So um, I, I, I think it's, there are not that many reported individuals, and there's not a whole lot of clinical data about how to actively treat. So please, when you criticize me uh, for lack of treatment guidance, um, I already know that. Um, so, but thank you for criticizing me about that. Um, but we're, we're going to talk about, about clinical presentation of erythromelagia, uh, proposed pathophysiology of erythromelagia, and treatments that may be considered for erythromelagia. And if you have thoughts at the end about what you think might be a proposed treatment, that works for me. Um, uh, the, I think the interesting thing about clinical medicine, and I see some very familiar faces here, is that for those of you who do take care of people, uh, you know that randomized controlled data uh, doesn't exist for every situation that we're exposed to, in fact, for most. Um, and so we often have to do the best we can. This is, these are pictures of people who have erythmologia. Um, you can see um, the, the redness and the disturbed the color and appearance of the skin in the distal upper or lower extremities. And what is it? This is a rare disorder, truly is a rare disorder associated with burning pain, warmth and erythema of the extremities. So you see, you'll, you'll, there'll be other pictures throughout the presentation, but here, just to go and show you again. Um, primary erythromelagia, um, which can be genetic or linked to a specific genetic abnormality or idiopathic, is distinguished from secondary, as we do with many disorders, um, uh, because secondary is secondary to another condition. Now, when adults acquire this condition, and I'll make this point again, um, it is most commonly secondary to a myeloproliferative disorder. So as a preview of coming attractions, when you see someone who is an adult, middle ages, middle age, not in the middle ages, but middle aged, or, or uh, could be in the middle age, but, we, um, but in the 30s, 40s, never had this before, it's, it, it, would be, it would be incumbent upon us to start looking for secondary causes, and you really want to might be vigilant about looking for a myeloproliferative disorder. Um, and, you know, depending upon how, how easy it is for you to get a hematologic consultation in your, in your town or institution, it might be a good thing to do. We can talk about that later. Um, I'm always in favor, personally, in, 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 if, if, a, if, if that kind of evaluation can lead to saving someone's life earlier, 
if they present with erythromelalgia and they may have a myeloproliferative disorder, I'm all in favor of doing that before it becomes obvious they have a myeloproliferative disorder. Um, a third, uh, actually, there uh, have been a couple of papers in the literature about a third category, uh, a very, very even smaller category, of those who have only platelet-mediated or an aspirin-sensitive erythromelalgia. And we know very little about that group, but this is, they're clearly uh, effectively treated with, the, with um, agents that, that act on platelets. Now, this was first described in the, 19, in the 1870s by S. Ware Mitchell. Now, S. Ware Mitchell is an American uh, neurologist during the Civil War. Does anybody want to guess what other condition he founded and discovered for the first time? Crips. Crips. Oh, not Crips, but it was Causalgia. Causalgia. Um, he was a neurologist in the Civil War, American Civil War, um, and um, um, he discovered, um, he made the observations that we would now typically think of as causalgia in people who were injured by, by, by um, various t- different missile and other injuries. Um, and so he also is responsible for this. Um, fewer than 30 instances of uh, early onset erythromyalgia, like really early onset, were initially reported in the literature for many, many years. Here are other conditions, here are other pictures rather. And you can see um, sometimes it's, it's not asymmetric. Um, see affecting the hands, here it's asymmetrically affecting people. And it's interesting that he, he made this observation because we often, you know, if you saw somebody with, I'm not saying they're equivalent, but if you saw somebody with a swollen erythematous foot and wasn't related to a vascular abnormality and it was painful and burning sensation, what would you start thinking about? CRPS of some sort. So, I mean, they're not, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not saying the same, although when we get to the pathophysiology, I'll throw in an interesting tidbit that might be of interest to you as well. Epidemiology, um, it, it, what we know about it, the, the early reports of age of onset of the early onset form was 10 years. Um, there are some even earlier than that that have been reported now. Most instances of adult onset erythromelalgia occur in the 50s and 60s. Um, over, there's a 30, over a 37-year period of time, one pediatric series uh, reported um, 32 instances in children even younger than 10 years of age. A Norwegian series of both primary and secondary erythromelalgia noted a range of age of 7 to 81 years. You can see when you have this kind of wide range, it doesn't occur that commonly and people are reporting what they've seen. So please don't have the take-home message that we have a lot of clinical experience. Not only have thousands and thousands, I mean tw- hundreds of thousands of people with this. The early onset instances, male to female ratio is 1 to, one to 2.5, so more females. And a review of secondary erythromelalgia due to myeloproliferative disorders demonstrated a male to female ratio of 3 to 2. So take-home message there is that earlier onset is, has a greater preponderance of females, um, not clear why. Secondary erythromelalgia due to myeloproliferative disorders, so an older group, um, the male to female ratio is three to two, so in favor of males. So primary erythromelagia, some of the pathophysiology tidbits. Some people have supported in their, in their, in their analysis uh, a, a problem with post, uh, post-ganglionic sympathetic dysfunction, hypersensitivity of C fibers, um, abnormal skin perfusion as a result of abnormal AV shunting, leading to pain and thermoregulatory abnormalities. Um, we did not, so 
we did not, some of you may not be familiar with that, but we actually demonstrated those findings in patients with fibromyalgia in our lab at Albany Medical College. That, that work in fibromyalgia was on the front cover of pain medicine several years ago um, because that was a new observation in fibromyalgia patients. Um, there's a linkage to the chromosome ARM2Q in five families. And I think one of the hottest areas of research are voltage-gated sodium channel mutations in peripheral nerves. And the interesting thing about sodium channels is that there are multiple types of sodium channels in neurons. They've served multiple purposes. There are multiple attempts currently at developing sodium channel-directed therapies for, for pain. Um, of course, we all know uh, that sodium channel blockers include local anesthetics. Some of our anesthet- uh, antidepressants, uh, for example, amitriptyline is a more potent sodium channel agent than is lidocaine, potency-wise. Okay, so sodium channels are really important and voltage-gated mutations have been shown to be uh, present in peripheral nerves. So why might NAV 1.7 as a subtype of sodium channel um, be important? Well, NAV 1.7 is preferentially, there's NAV up to 1.9, so there are multiple types of sodium channels. Um, NAV 1.7 is preferentially expressed in small diameter nociceptive neurons. So that's where they're found. Um, it can be upregulated in a state of inflammation. So another way of looking at that is that someone in a state of pain or inflammation is going to have more of these. Action potentials strongly depend upon NAV 1.7, this sodium channel, which plays the role of a threshold gate, meaning that, that if it's active, there's, it, its threshold is lower, and there are greater action potentials in these nociceptors. So mutations that facilitate the activity of NAV 1.7 could be pro-nociceptive. Loss of function sodium channel mutations in NAV 1.7 might be less nociceptive or anti-nociceptive, okay? Um, So molecular alterations in this subtype of sodium channel um, may be important. So there's a, a very well-known uh, mutation in sodium channels described as, uh, here as SCN9A. This can lead to a gain of function. So gain of function in a sodium channel mutation means it's more active. A gain of function mutation, which is here described as SCN9A, is an increase in the functionality of NAV 1.7. It's like having a, a, an act, like a, 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 a NAV 1.7 that's been, is more active than it should be normally. And that means that its function is increased. And that can cause in, in disorders like erythromyalgia or, and loss of function disorders, so that different mutations can lead to congenital insensitivity and pain. So Stephen Waxman is a professor at Yale who has done a tremendous amount of research um, on, on these sodium channels and specifically NAV 1.7. Um, and he um, has, been, has published many papers. In fact, almost every paper that, that um, I reviewed um, in developing this presentation had his name somehow associated with it because he's done most of the basic science associated with this. So gain-of-function sodium channel mutations can result in, in painful disorders, loss of function, um, insensitivity to pain. The other important point, I said I'd throw you some other important tidbits. Not all... So we have demonstrated the expression of, of NAV 1.7 sodium channels in your keratinocytes. So your skin cells that I just sloughed off, 
actually have, it's not only peripheral nerves that carry sodium channel uh, um, expression, but also your keratinocytes, the reason why we've seen changes in patients with CRPS. We've seen overexpression of their, now of their so, of specific types of sodium channels in the skin of people with, with uh, CRPS. So it's interesting how these conditions overlap. I'm focusing on erythromelagia. Um, and one specific mutation, and there, in the references for this talk, I've included that, that, that series, one, and this has been stuff that's been studied at Yale, one specific mutation is associated with unique responsiveness to carbamazepine. So one mutation of the SCNA gene causes pain due to sodium to NAV1.7 gain of function, and that mutation is uniquely, those patients who have that mutation respond uniquely well to carbamazepine. So I know it's a small kind of pilot thing, but that's kind of like, you know, kind of neat, okay? And for those of you who are not familiar, carbamazepine has a tricyclic-like structure and has sodium channel antagonist properties. Okay, just more pictures uh, to remind us what this looks like. See pretty extreme changes here <coughs> as well. Okay, so what is the clinical presentation of erythromelagia? The cardinal symptoms are extremity redness, pain, and warmth. Um, the symptoms are brought on by warming or extremity dependency. So there are specific provocative um, um, measures. Cooling tends to relieve the symptoms. Burning is another reported symptom. And actually, people may have, although I haven't shown you this here, um, I, I, and I, I couldn't find an image of this, but ear, auricular erythromelagia, has been reported as well. Episodes of erythromelagia, when they're triggered, can last minutes to days. Um, this is really fascinating. How many of you attended, did any of you attend the International Neuropathic Meeting in Sweden, in Gothenburg? No, that was just a couple, it was four months ago, five months ago. Um, no, well, the re only reason why I ask, because you never know, people attend different meetings, and I, I was there. Um, and, but the reason why I brought it up was because there was an amazing discussion about neuropathic itch um, in one of the sessions. And that's a whole, that's different from neuropathic pain, and neuropathic itch is observed by C fibers, but different types. Some C fibers only express, only, only, um, 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 help to facilitate neuropathic itch sensations, and some, um, are pain and itch, and some are only pain. So it becomes really complicated, and I didn't mean to complicate the situation other than to say that itching is often associated with the, at the beginning of the episode. Some, many people have described that they feel itching first, and then, they, then, then burning afterwards. And so that's kind of that's, that's kind of interesting. Some people have, not, have been reported not being able to walk until they immerse their feet in ice water. Um, and you know, cooling has a lot of different effects, not only on C fibers, but on other mechanisms. So it's not clear, that's not meant to say that that means there's a mechanism that's inferred, but they just report not being able to walk. Lower extremities are affected more often than upper extremities, with the soles of the feet and toes the most commonly affected. But bilateral is what usually happens, but it's not necessarily symmetric. And we saw some pictures of asymmetric involvement. Um, Warming the extremity or keeping the extremity in a dependent position, obviously, based upon what triggers it, can make the symptoms worse. Cooling and elevating the extremity may improve the symptoms. Um, Raynaud's phenomenon has been reported in individuals with erythmologia, but the relationship between the two is uncertain. 
So you might say, oh, yeah, it's vascular, and it must be. No, we, we don't know what the, two, what the relationships are. When it is associated with a myeloproliferative disorder, erythromelagia may precede the diagnosis of the myeloproliferative disorder by a median of 2.5 years. Okay, and aspirin seems to help that particular type of myeloproliferative, uh, that type of erythromelagia. So I don't think I'm far, it's far-fetched to say that if any of us were to see in our practice, whatever kind of practice we have, someone with, a, with erythromelagia or someone who you suspected of having erythromelagia and you made a diagnosis and they were in their 30s, 40s, 50s, it wouldn't be unreasonable, and I mentioned this earlier, to send that person or to at least do some kind of screening tool to think about or at least follow that person a little bit more cautiously because it is much more likely to be associated with a myeloproliferative disorder and it may precede it by two and a half years on average. Okay? So that's clear. That's just good medicine. It's also good from a legal point of view, but it's good medicine. Okay, so physical examination. These are triggered episodes. So if someone has a history of such, they may be normal when you happen to see them. But during a symptomatic phase, there may be warmth, tenderness, the skin may be mottled, red, dusky, as the pictures um, would depict. Um, Acrocyanosis has been observed. Peripheral pulses may actually be stronger than expected um, or normal. Now, of course, that's a funny thing to say because how do you know, if you haven't been measuring somebody's pulse for a long period of time, how do you know if it's stronger? But that's been reported. Um, checking for splenomegaly, lymphadenopathy is important, even for those of us who are not hematologists or general practitioners, you know, internists, uh, family practitioners, just because we can still feel for those things, at least I think I can. Uh, but it's important given the association of erythromelagia with myeloproliferative disorders, especially in older people. So differential diagnosis. First important point is, if you don't think about it, you won't make it, right? So if you, just, if you don't think about the diagnosis, it's not going to happen. So Fabre's disease. Now the thing about this is that Fabre's disease is associated with, with um, galactocerebrosidase deficiency. One of the, it's a, one of the lipos, lysis lysosomal storage disorders. Other ones in this, that include Tay-Sachs disease, Gaucher disease, you may have heard of those. Fabry's disease is one of them. If you were to see somebody in your practice who had um, distal paresthesias, distal painful events, maybe some redness, um, you could screen them through a blood test for Fabry's disease. Unlike primary and some of the secondary forms of erythromelagia, even if they they look like, this is a differential diagnosis, they may look like, but even if if they didn't, if they they had Fabry's disease, and even if it was late onset, they can be cured or they can be treated with enzyme replacement. um, Galactocerebrosidase Well, the, the enzyme deficiency, the lysosomal storage disease, defic- the lysosomal enzyme deficiency associated with Fabry's disease is now treatable with enzyme replacement. And that's really important because it's treatable. So if you were to identify someone as having Fabry's disease, even though they look like they had erythromelagia, you could help that person in a much different way than if they had primary erythromelagia. Peripheral neuropathies may present with overlapping 
uh, findings. Raynaud's phenomenon, vasculitis, frostbite, CRPS, kind of mentioned that point some in the pathophysiology, cellulitis. So you have to think about these things to make them. And I, I'm sorry for taking so long with the Fabry's disease, but I figured some of you may not know that it was a lysosomal storage disease, but it's treatable. It's treatable. And you don't want to stay, you know, w, I hate to say this, and some of you, if you've ever heard me speak before, I say this all the time, and I know I'm boring, but WNL means not with the normal limits very often, it means we never looked. And so if you don't think about it, you won't think about it, you won't be able to help somebody. Laboratory evaluations, no specific imaging is helpful. Thermography has been described by some as being potentially helpful. I, I wouldn't necessarily routinely suggest it in general. And uh, maybe a blood count, CBC, if you're seeing somebody, um, just to check for a mild proliferative disorder. There is no specific medical treatment that's been established, um, and that stinks. Um, other than if you were to find a, a condition like Fabry's disease that may have a particular treatment for it. Um, cooling and elevating the involved extremity may help to reduce symptoms. Um, avoiding warmth, um, so that may be unavoidable if you live in a warm climate. Uh, keeping the extremity in a dependent position, avoiding that at least, may help to prevent symptoms. Treating the underlying myeloproliferative disorder has been described as being helpful. Surgical sympathectomy has been studied has not been shown to be helpful. And this is terrible in this day of being wanting to exercise, avoiding vigorous exercise is advised. That puts somebody in a catch-22. Uh, there is no best pharmacologic treatment that's been established for primary erythromelagia. Case reports have included typhoid vaccine, um, gabapentin, IV, lidocaine, IV local anesthetics. Um, in fact, there was one big series in England using IV lidocaine, propranolol, sodium nitroprusside, magnesium, compounded mitodrine, uh, which acts on the autonomic nervous system, um, biofeedback, vexillotine, which you know is an um, um, antiarrhythmic drug with sodium channel blocking activities, and prostacycline. Treating the underlying disorder, if you can identify that, is in, in instances of secondary erythromelagia may be a benefit. There's actually been one instance reported in the literature of successful treatment with IVIG, um, which is intravenous gamma globulin, which is used in a lot of different peripheral neuropathic uh, states, um, in central neuropathic disorders as well, uh, in a person with erythromelagia and polyarthritis, and platelet inhibition in people who have documented thrombocytosis has been demonstrated, and erythromelagia has been um, um, shown to be beneficial. So let's talk a little bit in more detail about inherited erythromelagia due to SCNA mutations. So SCN, I mentioned SCNA, SCN9A mutations or sodium channel mutations. This is widely regarded as a genetic model of human pain. I mentioned Stephen Waxman, who is a professor at Yale. Um, it's really worthwhile reading his work. Um, he's, he, he is the person in this world who um, has... Um, contributed probably the most to his lab, um, and there are many reviews that are really worthwhile reading about this topic in general. Um, erith inherited erythromelagia has been linked to, as I mentioned earlier, gain of function changes of the NAV 1.7 sodium channels, and this has only been discovered in the last 10 years. So when I was asked to develop this, you know, this discussion today, and I started looking at the literature, I was like, wait, a lot of this stuff has just been discovered in the last couple of years. There's really not a lot that's, that's new, that, I mean, that's older than that, that has any kind of genetic or molecular um, information. Thirteen people um, have been clinically profiled 
um, who have primary inherited erythromelagia and a mutation of the SNN9A, the gene encoding NAP 1.7. Only 13 people. And so in that clinical profiling, um, you know, we use various questionnaires, quantitative sensory testing, olfaction testing to see to what extent olfaction was involved if, if this genetic mutation was linked to any changes in olfaction as well. And individuals were, ex- were expected to keep a pain diary. So significant variability was noted even with the same family with respect to the number, duration, intensity of attacks. So this is of no help to us in predicting things, but this shows you how um, difficult it is in a rare condition to get this kind of information. Even in, pa- in family members who had the same mutation, they had variabilities in what drove their attacks, what maintained their attacks, and how bad the attacks were. Um, 11 out of 13 of the patients experienced pain in between attacks, so they didn't have the frank actual alp- the erythema and the full-blown picture, but they still had pain in between, which is interesting. Uh, you know, what was driving those episodes in between? Um, and they did note in general that the intensity of those attacks was, of the pain, was lower than during a, a full-blown attack of erythromelagia. Olfaction testing did not reveal hyperosmia, so any increased smelling. That was a concern because of the way, um, uh, just, just to see um, if olfaction was involved as well. QST demonstrated significantly increased detection thresholds for cold and warmth at affected compared with unaffected areas. Um, so QST, there were QST abnormalities. Um, and secondary phenotyping at the affected sites was consistent with a small fiber neuropathy process. So it's been demonstrated in other studies that small fiber neuropathy it can be linked to sodium channel mutations as well. So isn't this getting complicated? <laughs> I mean, it probably at one point we'll stop using erythromelagia and we'll call them a variant of some type, either sodium channelopathies or, or something else. So I'm just coming attractions, I think, in my opinion. Um, so just a couple of treatment case reports. Um, it's a nine-year-old male. These are all published. The references are at the end. Nine-year-old male was treated with IV lidocaine and then oral mixilatine. Um, Several of our colleagues at the University of California in San Francisco years ago demonstrated that people who responded to IV lidocaine were likely to respond when transitioned to oral mixilatine. When other people tried to use oral mixil, other colleagues, including somebody I'll be speaking with tomorrow, Mark Wallace from UCSD, did formal studies with oral mixilatine only for neuropathic pain. They didn't find it very helpful um, at doses that were usually tolerated. Um, however, there are still case reports of people um, of, of people responding, selective individuals, to IV lidocaine and then oral mixilatine. How many of you are familiar with the use of IV lidocaine, IV lidocaine in your practice? Do you, do you use it, Ed? Yeah, in fact, the four cases that we had up there, we treated with lidocaine, infused, but only two of them were uh, successful. Yeah. And so um, are you wearing a red shirt because of erythromelagia in honor of this? No, no, I, thought, I, did not, I did not know that my colleague and friend would be here today, but <laughs> Dr. Mick, Mitch, sorry, for putting you in a spot. Uh, right, right. So I bring up, and, I, and I'm glad that somebody other than me said that, because I, I and, and, and another colleague, Dr. Brad Gaylor, 
who, um, who's not in the pain field anymore, but um, uh, was behind the development of, of many other treatments in the past, um, was the person with another colleague at UCSF who published this, that IV lidocaine would predict who responded to mixiltine, but he really is a personal friend, and I've told him a million times I don't believe him because no one that I know of has ever seen that. Um, but this is a case report. Um, and the lidocaine was administered first as a bolus injection of IV lidocaine, one milligram per kilogram in 20 mLs of normal ceiling over a minute, followed by uh, four milligrams per kilogram in 250 milliliters of normal ceiling for three hours. Do you do multi-hour infusions? No, we do it over uh, 30 minutes. Okay, so what we do in our center, we have, um, I'm at Albany Medical Center, um, and we have a, a special infusion center uh, in our hospital, and on any given day, there must be five or six of our patients getting four to six hour infusions of lidocaine. Um, in fact, they know it's been so successful uh, for people in helping them with various neuropathic and non-neuropathic painful conditions, um, but we have found multi-hour infusions to be successful and we have the facility to do it. Um, and there are two recent publications in pain medicine um, supporting long-term treatment with ivulidocaine infusions in general. So um, maybe not this is a case report, and there just aren't enough um, experiences with erythromelagia, although we've heard different divergent views here um, to, say, to support this, but if you see somebody, it might be worth considering. After seven days of ivulidocaine, mixilitine was started in this patient with a satisfactory outpatient um, experience. Um, 46 patients in a long-term evaluation and treatment study or evaluate, it wasn't even a study, it was just an observational study. 46 patients were contacted by telephone survey. Um, most of them, 41 of the 46 were female. They were at a mean age of 57 at the time of, of the phone survey. The onset of erythromelagia was 41, with a range of age from 8 to 84. Raynaud's phenomenon was present in 80%, and it appeared uh, in this survey be, uh, before the erythromelagia symptoms, an average of 7.4 years before. Eight experienced a concurrent connective tissue disorder. 57% were past or current tobacco users. And 12 out of the 46 had family members with Raynaud's syndrome. So doesn't that feel like a teaser, right? It's kind of giving you bits and pieces of information, but not enough information to um, draw any conclusions. The most common symptoms, burning, 96%. Heat, 93%. Pain in general, 87%. Redness, 83%. Swelling, 65%. And numbness, 54%. Numbness is interesting, because why would numbness occur? But numbness did occur in the majority of people. 48% had continuous symptoms. 98% involved lower extremities. 76 involved upper extremities as well. 20% involved the face. And many of the earlier reports did not describe it involving the face. 85% reported hot environments worsening symptoms. 78% worsened with exercise. 76% worsened at night. Um, and... and um, this is a study that, this is an observational study done in the United Kingdom, and um, Illoprost, which is a prostacyclin analog, was, was, was associated with the best treatment response among those who were surveyed in the United Kingdom. Um, outcome studies, decreased overall survival was seen in a series of 168 patients seen at the Mayo Clinic between 1970 and 1994 when compared with age and sex match controls. A more recently published Swedish series reported no, more, no mortality, clearly related to erythromelagia. Aspirin-responsive instances of erythromelagia had fewer morbidities, according to the literature. 
Early onset erythromelalgia is more often unresponsive, so the early onset children, genetic conditions, genetic etiologies. Um, extremity necrosis, gangrene, ulcerations is possible, and these combined with secondary infections have led to gangrene and can lead to gangrene. And hypothermia has been reported in a person who, severe hypothermia, who require constant cooling to treat the symptoms. So the, the condition didn't cause the hypothermia, the treatment of the condition did. So again, going, just going, going, I know this at the end to talk about etiology, but just again, etiology of primary erythromelalgia um, is idiopathic in the majority of instances, um, and, or secondary to a mild proliferative disorder. Early onset erythromelalgia is more often seen in families and has genetic etiologies. 3.6 instances, however, in one Mayo Clinic series, only 3.6% were related to a familial um, link. I mentioned earlier that the gain-of-function mutations in the gene SCN9A underlies an autosomal dominant disorder, and, and, and that is what's known in the literature as hereditary erythromelalgia. But keep in mind, this is an autosomal dominant disorder. Um, and over 20 of these SCN9A mutations have been reported in patients with primary erythromelalgia. And which lab has reported most of these? The Yale lab, Dr. Dr. Um, um, Dr. Waxman. Myeloproliferative secondary erythromelalgia etiologies. Again, I've mentioned a number of different times that um, secondary erythromelalgia may often, in older patients, uh, middle-aged patients, be due to a myeloproliferative disorder associated with uh, thrombocytosis, for example, so polycythemia vera or essential thrombocytosis um, are, are those that have been reported to be associated. Other medications, now we'll talk, go through a, a list of, of reported other causes that can secondarily cause erythromelalgia, bromocryptine, nicardipine, nifedipine, velodipine, topical isopropanol, pergolide, which is no longer sold in the United States due to serious side effects. Uh, the a pox virus outbreak in China and it, it was associated with secondary erythromelalgia, and HIV has been associated. Mushroom poisoning has been reported. Uh, lupus, diabetes, gout, RA, venous insufficiency, and in one report, an astrocytoma was associated with such. So, in conclusion, um, this is a rare disorder. Erythromelalgia is a rare disorder with both primary and secondary subtypes. Um, there are recent scientific advances that have led to the association of primary erythromelalgia with specific sodium channel genetic mutations. That group of patients has been specifically studied with carbamazepine as a treatment, and there are very promising results. Um, and it's believed that information that's being learned from the primary subtypes um, may lead to not only improved treatment of this condition, but other conditions as well, as we see the overlap between people who have erythromelalgia and may have small fiber neuropathies and other conditions. So I'll stop there, and there's about five minutes for questions, and hopefully I can answer something. But thank you for coming. Yes? What was that? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I only. I. I mean, there was no. So, and I'm sorry for being so. There was no in, in the re, in that telephone survey. Um, there was no reference to the the study. There was no formal study of Iloprost demonstrating benefit. It was more of a review of what people had used. I don't know why it worked. 
I'm sorry, I'm being honest. You know, I, yeah. Right. 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 Uh, so I, I think um, so. If you're in a fortunate position where you get to follow people regularly and you see that person, you know, regularly, you're probably in a better position to see any other changes and to make those determinations. I think the truth is we don't know. Um, the med- median time before the onset of other symptoms was 2.5 years, but there was a range, and there are just the numbers are just too small to really be, in my opinion, to be able to say something definitively. So I'm always particularly cautious. Um, I saw somebody yesterday who I've taken care of for, before coming out here, who I've taken care of probably for 10 years. Um, and he's had very stable, he's really a wonderful person, business person in the community, who um, has had widespread OA type complaints and really has very, 74 has very little in terms of any real severe compressive, ridiculous or other ideology. And he just said, and I, and I see him regularly just to stay on top of things with him. But yesterday he, he said um, that he felt worse than usual and his hips were bothering him and his back was bothering him. The, the upside of the story is I sent him for um, a CBC and a SED rate. I had done that before and it's always been normal. But this time his SED rate was sky high and he had a very high white count. And he was anemic. And his x-rays were perfectly fine. He had normal hips, normal, you know, I mean, we don't usually use these, but I needed to do something that day. And I don't know, and I spoke with his internist today, and I don't know, and he, we don't know what's wrong with him. So I guess someone, to answer your question, I'm sorry it was so long-winded, but the anecdote for me is that what, even though things normal, 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 things change in people. And so I'd always have an index of suspicion Right. I would always have an index of suspicion, and I don't know, I would say you have to test every year, but it would be nice to, to keep in touch with that person's primary care physician or just know. Right. Yes, and so I can't, um, I can't tell you how frequently, and it's been reported that specifically chemotherapy-induced neuropathies are associated with a specific sodium channel change, but the other interesting point about that, and I'm just throwing this, I'm just thinking out loud, is that um, there are probably a number of us at this conference who have inherited genetic tendencies towards certain painful conditions that we don't know about until we're exposed to something else. <laughs> And so there may be people who are particularly, I know people like um, uh, Gary Bennett and McGill and other people have looked at chemotherapy-induced painful neuropathy or neuropathy in general as a mitochondrial disorder. Um, but there may be a combination of factors that do um, result in them. Some people are able to tolerate this better than others. We do lidocaine infusion for those people all the time. But, I, but it's not, but, and, and what's been, the two series that I, the two articles that I reported, um, uh, one, one was a, a, a review over years at the University of Wisconsin, and they treated people with many different conditions there.
Yeah. I think that, you know, uh, um, just to answer, I know we use IV lidocaine very frequently. It's not a, officially FDA approved for any particular painful condition, so we're using it off label. But if you think about, you mentioned already, and I'm responding to what you said, people who have experienced painful chemotherapy related neuropathy, what do we have for them? And so, you know, IV lidocaine in a monitor, I mean, our patients are being monitored by a nurse at their bedside, They're, they have monitors hooked up to them, their vitals are being measured continuously. You know, we have a well-designed, uh, we have, we have a, our, our pharmacy, um, uh, have, we have an order sheet, we have, if this happens, do this. You know, we're, in, we're in, in, in the hospital, there's a code team there, you know, we can take care of everybody. We're not doing this without uh, appropriate monitoring, and we've not had any issues. And if you could help somebody, there are literally people who, if they go once every other week, or even sometimes once a month, sometimes once a week, which is a lot to ask of somebody, they can use less medication and be more comfortable. And be, and forget, it's not, oh, it's, it's more medicine. If medicine isn't working, if stimulation isn't working, if non-medical approaches aren't working, you know, everyone has a case report of this. Uh, I mean, in general, nothing works well for everybody, so it's another tool to use. I think you had a question? I don't know if that's been well characterized. I don't, I don't, I do not believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both at the same time? How much? Okay. Uh huh. So the only the, the most and please, if anyone has uh, anyone has other information, the, the 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 most recent and I think carefully done study that I know of is was done at Stanford uh, with low dose low dose naltrexone in people with fibromyalgia. Um, uh, I'm not aware of a study done in patients with erythromyalgia, um, and I doubt that there is one because I just reviewed all this literature, and at least not in, in, the, in PubMed, indexed in PubMed. But I wonder, can I ask you a question? It's interesting that so you're using three medicines. Um, one medicine, which is um, tried and true, amitriptyline. Um, one medicine, which may hold promise, because, you know, naltrexone. And then I'm wondering why are you using venlafaxine at a SSRI dose as opposed to a, a higher dose of venlafaxine, at a, which would be SNRI-like? Ah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Okay. And any other questions? Well, thank you very much for attending that. I'm sorry I don't have like more data, but.